Hi folks, welcome back to Bibliology, the podcast where I speak to Bible scholars about their recent research and its implications for communities of faith. I'm very, very excited for the episode today um, because you're going to get to hear my conversation with Dr. Dale Allison, who is Richard J. Dearborn Professor of New Testament Studies at Princeton Theological Seminary and who has been described as North America's most complete New Testament scholar. He has written widely on topics such as the historical Jesus, the Gospel of Matthew, early Jewish and Christian eschatology, and religious experience, amongst other topics. His new book, which we'll be discussing today, is called The Resurrection of Jesus, Apologetics, Polemics, History, and I would wholeheartedly endorse this book as a thought-provoking piece of work for anyone who has even a moderate interest in Christianity and history. He really dives into so many fascinating historical rabbit holes and comes out with suggestions that we might not all agree with, but no one can fault his commitment to go after truth and really wrestle with the, the biblical text. Um, you can find a link to the book in the description, and without further ado, let's get on to the conversation. Hello, Dr. Allison, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, Patrick. Glad to be with you. I'd like to start with a with a set of uh, brief, fun questions just to establish uh, what you're like in uh, normal, everyday life, which obviously not many of us have had for a long time now. But um, it'll be interesting just to find out a little bit more about you. So we're going to be talking about your book, obviously, and in the introduction of your book, and I, I'll just add this as an aside. The book is almost worth it just for the introduction because it's very, um, you know, you're you're very detailed in describing, you know, these four different personalities in your head and everything, and uh-huh. <laughs> that's that, that's really good. But um, in any case, you say that you are a Protestant whose favorite theologians are not Protestant. Granted, this, what is it about Protestantism that keeps you in this church tradition? So. Th- That's a great question to which I do not have a great answer. I'm afraid the answer probably is inertia. So here's the situation. I was raised uh, a Protestant, but I became Eastern Orthodox in the 1980s. And so my wife and I attended an Orthodox church for uh, about 10 years. We left, I think it was 1991, for multiple reasons. It was a very sad uh, departure. Uh, Part of the reason, maybe this will interest somebody, is that I got my PhD in 1982, and I didn't get my first full-time job until 1997. So I worked at a bookstore, worked at a hardware store, did lots of adjunct teaching. And one of the problems was that I was Eastern Orthodox, and Protestant seminaries then didn't didn't know what to make of me and didn't want uh, somebody like that. And the secular universities were not interested in me. But the Orthodox also weren't interested in me because I had never been to an Orthodox seminary. I didn't have an Orthodox uh, education. My, my degrees were advanced degrees were from Duke University, Divinity, uh, Duke University. Um, and for that and several other reasons, I couldn't get a job. And uh, sad to say, at one point, I decided I'm never going to get a job unless I'm a Protestant. So that wasn't the only thing going on, but um, it was part of it. And as it turned out, we had friends at a local Presbyterian church, so that's where we ended up. And then as it turned out, 
the school that finally hired me after 15 years on the market was uh, Presbyterian Seminary in Pittsburgh. And then as it just happened, the school that uh, employs me now is also Presbyterian. Princeton Seminary uh, is a, a Presbyterian Church uh, USA affiliated institution. And so it's just easy to walk down the street to the church uh, two blocks away, and, okay. and that's it. But my wife and I do attend Orthodox services every once in a while, and I do miss it. So I don't really think of myself as Protestant or uh, Orthodox or anything. I'm just a sort of, uh, I don't know, some sort of Christian who scrounges around and finds thing to, things to like and dislike everywhere. Okay. I don't want to be completely tepid about the Protestant tradition. I really do value the the liberal Protestant legacy, uh, especially uh, in Germany. Um, I think the modern theolog theological experiments are all failures, but I think they were necessary. I think it was necessary to have a Schleiermacher and a Harnack and a Bultmann and a Tillich. And I also greatly value the historical critical uh, schools that come out of Germany. So I do feel a deep intellectual affiliation with that side of Protestantism, and I do belong there. Uh, at least part of me belongs there. Okay. And uh, would these theologians who, you know, your favorite theologians, would they be Eastern Orthodox, that kind of thing? or? Yeah, that's well. So Origen is, is uh, in the East. He was not sainted, but he's certainly a source of uh, a lot of Eastern thought. And Gregory of Nyssa is one of my all-time favorites, one of my favorite human beings. And Isaac of Nineveh is uh, also. So if you're talking about the first thousand years of the church, those are probably my three favorite people, and they're all in the East. They're not uh, not in the West. Okay, yeah. So um, needless to say, you've read a lot of theologians, but you've also, I imagine, read your Bible quite a bit anyway, if, you, if you're a professor of Bible-related things. Um, but uh, if, if you could ask a human Bible character not named Jesus one question, uh, what would it be, do you think? So I understand this rhetorically, it's, but it's impossible to answer because uh, there are hundreds of questions. Nonetheless, I'll, I'll go along. So two are the questions I would ask. I, I would have to spend, if we're if this were real, I'd have to spend days. And if I if I only got one question, I have to spend days getting just the right one. But uh, off the top of my head, uh, I would really like to ask Peter uh, a sort of compound question about the gospel of Mark. I would like to ask him what he thinks of it and why. And whatever he said would be fascinating. Let's say that he said, you know, I don't know how that rumor got started that I had something to do with this gospel, but it's pretty good anyway. You know, I, I think, you know, most of it agrees with my memories, lines up with how I remember things. Or he might say, uh, I had nothing to do with this, and I disagree with all sorts of things in it, and then I'd like to hear what those are. Or he might say, yeah, I know the author. It's John Mark. He, he hung around me, and he got most of it right. Or despite the fact that he hung around me, I mean, he just has a lousy memory, and he got this, that, and the other thing wrong. I would really love to have the answer to, to that question. And then since, I'm, since this is a rhetorical question, and uh, I haven't had months to think about it. There's a second question, okay? I know that's sure. cheating. You said one, but Go ahead. I'm going to cheat. I would really like to ask the author of the Gospel of Mark, 
whoever that was, uh, what his intended ending was. So most modern scholars, I think that's a fair generalization, think that the gospel ended at 16.8. The women, you know, they were, they were afraid, they ran away, they didn't say anything to anybody. But if you go back to the first half of the 20th century or the last half of the 19th century, most people thought it was a mutilated text and that it couldn't have ended at 16.8. I've never been able to make up my mind. If it ended at 16.8, I'd like the explanation for that. And if it didn't, wow, I'd really like to know what the heck is on the other side of that mutilated end. So uh, both of those questions, interestingly enough, have something to do with, uh, with Mark's gospel. Anyway, those are the two that come to mind. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting. Um, I was just thinking there that those two questions are about Mark when really all you've, all your, a lot of your research has been actually on the first gospel, hasn't it, on Matthew? So you seem pretty confident about Matthew, you know, what's going on there anyway. Well, yeah, boy, that's conceited and short-sighted, isn't it? Um, <laughs> But yeah, I do have more questions about the text I haven't studied than than the text that I have studied studied the most. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, on on your Wikipedia page, and speaking of your scholarship, I, I counted twenty three print publications that you've been involved in. So um, I, I don't know. Do you ever go on your Wikipedia page and just check everything's correct? Or I did once, and there was a mistake, and I didn't bother correcting it. I don't know if it's still there or not. I don't know who these mysterious people who write are <laughs> who write these things, and I don't know how I would go and fix it anyway. Is it easy? Maybe you um, can tell me how to do this. <laughs> I've I've never tried to fix a Wikipedia page. So, uh, <laughs> okay. I'm not one of those kind of people. Um, I, but I, I'd be curious to know. Um, you know, assuming that these twenty three print publications are correct. I'd, I'd be curious to know how many hours per day, you know, you spend writing and how you've culti cultivated discipline over the years. Are, are you the kind who, you know, has classical music, Bach playing in the background as, as you read and write that type of thing or? No, no, my, <laughs> I, I'm listening to the, to the kinks and uh, pop music from the sixties and seventies mostly. And then uh, some guitarists. Uh, you said earlier, you weren't into those, uh, fancy guitarist. I'm into some some of those shredder okay. types. Yeah. Jimmy so, Hendrix. Yeah, but but uh, Hendrix is okay. My favorite guitarist is Steve Morris. I don't even know if you even know who he is. Anyway, uh, yeah. um, I don't have a routine, and I can't have a routine because I'm employed. What that means is that I teach classes. I meet with students. We have faculty meetings. We have departmental meetings. I'm on committees. I'm on lots of committees. Um, and then the, the things of, of uh, everyday life. Um, and I don't even have an office. This office that I'm in right now is in my house. I don't have an office uh, on campus. So I'm constantly being interrupted. If I have a gift, I think it's this. Uh, some people need time to write and they need everything to be just so. But I can sit down and write. I can type for five minutes and be interrupted and come back 10 minutes later, and five seconds later, I'm back exactly where I was. So that's that's a gift I have. But I'll tell you what, I don't know how I've written all the stuff that I've written. I sometimes look at all these books over here and say, how did that happen? It's just kind of magical, because writing is not easy for me. And uh, when I'm working on a book, and I'm in a groove, and I have several days or weeks or even months where I can get enough time in the day, maybe eight hours, 
I, I aim for one page. And once I have that one page, it's nowhere uh, near polished or final form. I would never let anyone see it, never. Uh, I'm constantly revising and rewriting. So I, I guess the, the, the answer to the question is I really don't have uh, a schedule anymore because I don't feel that I'm in control of my life. Um, but I like to ideally produce one page uh, a day of a first draft, okay? Now, I've never sat down and calculated, you know, I suppose I could waste my time figuring out how many pages I've published and what the real, the truth is here, right? How many have I really written every day? Uh, I have, I have no idea. Mm, okay, that's, yeah. That's, that's the goal. Yeah, and, and I appreciate finding an academic who, who finds it, also finds it difficult to write because, I, I, like... Do you ever have that thing where you're just thinking about thinking about writing and, and you have no idea how it actually happens, you know, like <laughs> how it actually comes out of your head and just onto the keyboard, you know, it's a it's a it's a mysterious process, you know? Yeah, and um, I and I still do different things. So sometimes I can't do anything and I say, okay, I'm just gonna write the stuff that's in my head, and it's just almost gibberish. But there are other times when, okay, I type, that sentence works. What's the next one? <laughs> Oh, I think I know. Uh, there's no, there's no rule here, at least in my life. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'd like to get on to um, speaking about your um, new book at, at this point, which is it's obviously it's called the Resurrection of Jesus: Apologetics, Polemics, History, and I'll uh, link this in the description. But um, uh, the first question I want to ask was like, even from the title of your book, it's clear that you're interested not just in the, the actual historical question of the resurrection, obviously that's of crucial importance, but you're also interested in the manner of the discussion uh, in, in not just in scholarly, but in popular circles. I think when I was uh, researching this interview, I, I think I come across a clip of you saying that you actually went on Christian apologists' websites and skeptics' websites just to see what they were. Uh, yeah. Um, but so... Um, what do you find to be interesting about like the manner of the discussion and the back and forth between apologists and skeptics? Well, a lot of it is shrill and I don't like it. And I must say that when I went to these websites, I was always focusing on resurrection. I, I didn't sit there and look at other topics. So I'm no, no expert on uh, this, this area. Um, and I am puzzled by some of these people who don't seem to have lives because all they do is sit there and write these long things every day ans answering their opponents. But to be serious here, one, one of the interesting things is that you really do have two entrenched camps. So you have some people like me who try or pretend to be as objective as they can, but this is usually dictated by presuppositions. So uh, you have two entrenched camps, and um, they begin with their convictions. This is incredible. Nobody could believe this, and it should be shot down, or this is the center of my faith. I believe it, and it needs to be defended. And once you start in those two places, you're both, both sides are ruled by what the psychologists call confirmation bias, which means um, you highlight all the stuff that fits what you think, and then you diminish or get rid of the things that, that, that don't fit. And that's really how your, your thinking goes. And 
I think it's fair to say that very few people here are open-minded. And the truth is, I may be wrong, but let's not say the truth is, but I don't think I know of anyone who in the middle of writing a book or an article on this topic changed his or her mind, you know, who wrote himself or herself out of what he or she already uh, thought. Now, that sounds very cynical. On the other hand, I think that this debate has in some ways moved forward. So if you go back and you read the old books from 100 years ago, uh, defending the resurrection, I think they are less effective and less plausible than some of the recent apologetical accounts. So I think that Mike Lacona and Gary Habermas and their so-called minimal facts approach, where they they try to find three, four, or five facts that most people can agree on, and then they get they ask the question, what's the most plausible explanation? I think that's a, a great improvement upon things that went before. I think it's an improvement upon Ponenberg's argument from the 1960s. So that's an advance. Also, some of the skeptics see, it seems to me, are better informed or fairer than some of the older skeptics. So Bart Ehrman uh, has discussed the resurrection in a book that published a few years ago. And one of the things that he's done is he's familiarized himself with a lot of the literature on visions. So he actually knows what he's talking about and makes some good points. So even though you have two entrenched camps, I think that maybe we make uh, progress. And maybe we're not just going to have, you know, the image I have is a World War One trench warfare, where you just shoot at the other side, right? Yeah. And then you have no man's land. Uh, I, I don't think that's where we are. I don't think that this, this is going to go on forever. Anyway, my own book um, is not apologetics. Uh, it's not skepticism. Um, my own view is that I'm just contributing to an ongoing conversation. This is not an end. It's not a conclusion. I just hope that some of the things I've said, uh, people will pay attention to and that uh, by supporting them or attacking them, um, the, the conversation will be improved. Yeah. Um, I'd be curious to know, and obviously I'm not, I'm not accusing you of this, but how, how would you avoid the charge of, you know, um, enlightened centrism? You know, I'm just the, the guy here with, you know, no biases and I can like perfectly evaluate everything, you know, I, I know you don't think that, but you know, it's might be something that some people would say you have to have biases, you know? Oh, well, I, I do. In fact, I think I, I tried to share some of them in, in, in the opening chapter that you, you referred to. Mm. Um, so I, I, I am a Christian and I go to church and I have some Christian beliefs, um, but I have doubts about all sorts of things and I doubt my beliefs and I have questions about them. So I'm always uh, talking to myself and trying to convince myself of this or this or that. Um, I don't I don't think anyone's ever thought of me as an apologist, right? Mm, I don't yeah. I don't think so. Um, because that's not who I am. Uh, maybe this is uh, a false conception, but I tend to think of an apologist as somebody who starts out with some belief and then wants to defend it. I'm looking at a belief and saying, do I really? Want to believe this? Should I believe it? Is this plausible? And I'm I'm not defending it for the public. 
I'm simply talking to myself. And I'm, I'm one of those lucky individuals that when I write, I'm arguing with myself and the publishers think that there are some people who want to overhear what I'm thinking, but I really am not. In fact, I say up front in this book, maybe page one or two or something, I say, I'm not interested in converting anybody. Uh, I, I'm just not. I'm just trying to figure this out for myself. Mm. And and I think, you know, that that is, um, you do do well in the introduction, you know, just to, you know, put all your biases out there and just, you know, clarify all that. Um, we've touched on this a little bit, but as, as a practicing Christian, um, do you think there's a role for historical apologetics in the church? Um, if so, are we doing a good job of it? Or are you probably in one of the more contemplative camps of, you know, Christians sort of more about, you know, a personal relationship than having, you know, a, a rationalist um, side to the faith, that sort of thing? Or? Ooh, ooh, ooh. No, 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 no. I, I'm totally into both of those. I don't want okay. to emphasize either one to the exclusion of, of the other. So the, the, way of, uh, the way I think about this is, is like this. Um, I teach at a seminary, and we have lots of students who come to seminary, and they come from conservative churches, or at least their pastors and their teachers were more conservative than the professors they run into here. And so they're always having a crisis of faith. This is really, really common. Uh, I've, I've had several students who came in as fundamentalists and left as atheists because they couldn't make the transition from a more conservative faith to a more middle-of-the-road the, the uh, faith. But th here's the problem. The problem is all you have to do is live in the modern world and read Genesis and you have questions, right? Or think about an afterlife and then read uh, modern scientists and try to figure out where's the, the soul in reductive materialism or read philosophers on miracles. I mean, everywhere you go, Questions are raised for you if you're paying attention to the Christian tradition and to its holy book, the, the, the Bible. And since there is perceived tension all over the place, of course, you're going to have apologists and people who are going to try to, to defend the faith. My own view is a, is a little different here. And again, I'm not thought of as an apologist, and some people think that I'm too uh, liberal or skeptical when it comes to the Gospels. I think I'm fairly conservative, but over against a number of other people, um, I, I, I'm not so conservative. My, my approach is just to think that we need to take all the data we can uh, and try to figure out what the world is about, try to figure out whether there is a God, try to figure out whatever it is there is to figure out. The only way to do that is to, to take in as much data as possible and to think about everything. So you got to think about psychology, anthropology, theology, philosophy, quantum mechanics, whatever. Uh, the only way you're going to figure out everything is by looking at, at everything. So I, again, I don't start out with a handful of beliefs. Um, let me try, let me try this. So when I was a teenager, 16, 17, for a year, year and a half, I went to a conservative evangelical church. And you can think of it this way. They gave me, let's say, let's say they gave me 50 beliefs. Here are the 50 things that you believe as a Christian. So the rest of my life, in effect, has been, well, I don't buy that one anymore. I have good reason to cancel that one. That one I still get. This one, I don't know. I'm still working on it. I may never get it solved. This one, 
okay, I see what the point was, but we have to revise it and update it and so on. It's like I have all these beliefs I was handed, and I have to spend the rest of my life, in effect, sorting through them and figuring out what I should and should not believe. And to do that, I need everything I can get, not just the resources of the, the Christian tradition. I need everything. So that's why I'm not an apologist. I'm somebody in the church who has doubts and questions and doesn't know lots of things. And um, my intellectual life is the pursuit of, of the things I don't know. Yeah, and and I think I think there is, you know, a, definitely a, a merit to that of like having people wrestling with these um, tough questions in as uh, in as impartial a way as they can muster. Anyway, some people, um, including obviously academics, they would say that you know studying the resurrection from a historical point of view is a is a meaningless endeavor, and that's because you know history can only study things that happen you know within ordinary space time reality. So. Um, I, I'm curious to know how you'd respond to this. Obviously, the resurrection as Christians, we believe it's a it's a physical thing, but it's not really a, an ordinary space-time thing. So how how okay. would you yeah? Okay, so there is some truth to that. So if, for example, Jesus rose from the dead, you can't investigate the mechanism by which that happened you said there's just no way to do it how how did that happen i would also say that there's no way to explore the metaphysical or ontological nature of the body of the risen christ is pretty weird uh you know in luke eats fish on the other hand he people don't recognize him and he pops in and out and uh and so on. It's mm. it's very strange, and I see no access to 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 that topic. Again, uh, how do you get back to the psychology of Paul and his vision? Right? How do you get back and study of a vision from somebody in the first century? So those things you can't do. But if you can't answer those questions, there are lots of questions you can answer because they are historical and even things that might be transhistorical, for want of a better term, can leave traces in history. So if 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 Jesus's uh, body was gone from the tomb, you can ask the question, was the tomb empty? But you can ask that as a skeptic. It seems to me that's a purely historical question apart from apart from the the explanation. You can ask questions such as is the story of the burial, plausible story of joseph of arabathea you can ask the question what did the disciples believe and when are they likely to have first believed it so even if it happened it leaves traces through its effects and you can study those so the way i think of it is you can ask lots of questions about the resurrection and historians can help you with some of them. That's it. They can help you with some of them. Uh, we can't do everything, but we can do some things. So in the book, um, that's what I'm doing at points. I'm saying, mm. well, I think this is likely, that's likely, and, and so on. Um, but but I, I want to emphasize that even though I am a Christian, in this book, I'm trying to be as even-handed as 
possible. It goes back to my not being an apologist. One of the things I do is I say, here's a skeptical scenario. Here's the best skeptical scenario I can come up with. Uh, it's not too bad. If you want to be a skeptic, this is the way I would go. Uh, and I thought that that was being fair, right? Mm. Um, but the interesting thing, the, and the reason I'm saying this, is that the skeptical scenario I defend and then the Christian version that I defend, both of them are consistent with the historical facts as I've uncovered them. Okay. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll drill down now and talk about um, some of these historical points in depth a bit. So I'd, I'd like to talk about Paul for a bit, as um, he's uh, probably our earliest witness to the resurrection tradition, at, at least. So what, and this is kind of a, this is kind of a weird question, but one of, one of the statements you make in your book is, um, Paul is not so far removed from the gospel traditions as many have supposed. So this is the idea that, you know, you have Paul on one hand, and then you have the the Gospels, and they're independent on the on the other sort of independent sources. So um, I'm curious to know whether um, you've you've thought of whether the Gospel writers may have known and used Paul's material. Is that uh, is that an idea that's ever kicking around in the academic circles? Or okay, so that's a really good question, and it's a question that I really haven't paid attention to until about the last five years. So I've always sort of operated on this assumption that. Mark is here, and then Paul's here, and John is here, and Q is there, and we have independent sources, and that makes doing history a lot easier than, than it otherwise might be. But um, there are a couple of things that have made me reconsider this lately. So first of all, within an evangelical or a traditional conservative framework, here, here's a problem for you. Let's say you think that John Mark really wrote Mark's gospel. And then let's say that you think the tradition is right about Luke-Acts and that Luke-Acts was written by Luke, the beloved physician. Both of these people are associated with Paul in the letters and Acts, and in Paul's letters, they are associated with each other. So if that were true, just, just ask the question, if it's true, if Mark and Luke... Uh, and Paul really do know each other, and they're sitting around chatting with each other, how on earth can you really push them as independent witnesses to anything, right? Mm -hmm. And um, I think this is a problem with some evangelical scholarship because they're defending the authorship of Mark by Mark, defending the authorship of Luke by Luke, and then they're still using... Q and Mark and Paul as independent sources, it doesn't make sense to me. But even apart from that, I've been doing a lot of thinking lately about um, what's called social network theory. And uh, thinking in terms of Paul in the first century, and if you take seriously, let's say the last chapter of Romans, he's never been to Rome, but he knows all sorts of people that are there. And if you look through Acts, and the rest of the New Testament, you have a lot of itinerant people. And one of the conclusions that I'm slowly coming to is that I think early Christianity, for at least the first maybe three decades or four, was a pretty small movement. And it may well have had some leaders. And it certainly had itinerants and people who traveled around the Mediterranean. And the question then becomes, did everybody know everybody? And was there more? Did Paul know everybody? And 
maybe if he didn't know somebody, there was only one person between him and somebody else. You know, the old game, you know, six degrees of separation. There are you know, only five people between you and everybody else in the whole world. You know somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody, mm-hmm. right? Uh, you can get to everybody in the whole world that way. I think it's like five or six. I think Paul gets probably gets to everybody through one, one right. move in the early church. And so the question is, are any of these people truly independent? Aren't they all influencing each other, talking to each other, reacting to each other, attacking each other, agreeing with each other, and so on? So I recently made a first stab at this. I published an article. It just came out. I don't even have the book yet. Um, but it's just a first stab, and it appears in a book that nobody will read. It's uh it's a book called uh, Cyprus Within the Biblical World, mostly archaeological papers. What my thing is doing there, I, I don't know. Uh, but nobody will ever see it. So I am I am thinking a lot of, uh, about this. So to be honest, I'm quite confused because I've spent my whole career on the assumption that I could think of certain sources as more or less independent of everybody. But if everybody knows everybody, uh I've got to rethink things. And so I'm still in the process of doing that. And this book uh, on resurrection, I was just beginning to think about that. And rather than put the whole thing on pause and spend another year on it, I just went ahead and said, okay, I'm done. But I'm now thinking about this. So it's a good question. I don't have the answer. Yeah, think something that occurred to me as you were saying that, you know, and this is just, you know, throwing this out here as, as an idea, like, you know, if we if we were in like the the second like looking at second world war documents you know we might say like we we would probably still treat you know something that Goebbels said and something that Goring said we would we would probably treat them as independent you know even if they're uh, if they would have known each other so uh-huh. but it but it is an interesting question of what constitutes you know something being independent or not so okay you know. so so let me give you an illustration why this really bothers me so yeah. traditionally what we say is that um if you look at the the lord's supper there there's mark's version and there's paul's version and then there's luke's version which kind of is in the middle right it's in the middle it's got some things that it shares with with paul and so some people will say we actually have two traditions here we have mark matthew matthew's copying mark and then we have the luke and pauline what if these people really did know each other they're actually celebrating the lord's supper together so to what extent are these really independent traditions yeah if the, if this were true right if this were true these are questions and maybe i'm gonna have to decide that we don't have the answers because we don't have enough information, but we have a lot more information about what was going on in Germany in the early 40s than we do uh, yeah, in the early yeah. church, I'm afraid. Yeah. That, that, is, that is true. Given that, however, I, I would like to talk about something that um, is obviously a, a crucial part of this um, discussion, this historical discussion, and that's the idea of um, creedal fragments in, in Paul's letters. So, um, could you explain to the audience um, what a creed is with uh, with an example, and maybe uh, comment on to what extent extracting these these fragments of creeds from Paul's letters is speculative? Okay, well, it's certainly speculative. I'll start with start with that. But anybody who's been in church, or most people who've been in church, know what the Apostles' Creed is or the the Nicene Creed. These are traditional formulations of faith. They are compact, they are short, they, they sum up important points, 
and then they are used in a, in a certain way in a, in, a, in a ritual context. So the idea is that something like this is, is already the case in the early church. That is, there are certain formulations uh, that are repeated and that lots of people uh, know and, and, and use. So if you just take the, the little phrase, God who raised Jesus from the dead, there are all sorts of variations of this in Acts and, and Paul and elsewhere. And this, this way of speaking is so widespread that you assume Paul didn't invent this and that this is an early way of, of speaking. It goes back uh, to, a, to an early time. But beyond uh, you know, finding a little phrase that gets repeated everywhere so you know it's traditional way of speaking, there are these little parts of, of, of Paul uh, where, where scholars think there are what they call pre-Pauline formula. And sometimes they'll say, well, there are some words here that aren't elsewhere in Paul, or there are concepts here which are elsewhere in Paul. And if you have both of those and you also have something like a, a, a poetic feel or, you know, antithetical parallels, parallelism, there's a lot of parallelism in creeds. That's just the way, for whatever reason, they get written. Um, then you can infer that Paul is using preformed material to some extent. Now, you also know uh, from Paul, from 1 Corinthians, that there were pre formed Pauline materials, because he says so. So in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, I handed on to you what was passed on to me, and then he he gives you, you know, Jesus uh, you know, died for our sins according to the scriptures and, and, and so on. Almost, I think everybody uh, believes that he's quoting some sort of formulation. The only issue is how much of it uh, is pre-Pauline, and what is he adding? Most of the people think he's adding his own experience at the end, but maybe he added the 500 or James or the 12. But at least through the appearance to Peter and, and the 12, uh, almost everybody says, yeah, this is a tradition, and he says so, right? Hmm. He says the same thing at the Last Supper. When he quotes that earlier in 1 Corinthians, he said, you know, this is a tradition, I'm passing it on. So the question is, are there also traditions like this where he doesn't say so? So one that I discuss in the book is uh, Romans 1, 3 through 4. There's been a huge uh, secondary literature on this. I'll, I'll just read it. Mm -hmm. The gospel concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and designated son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So if you look at this very carefully, there are some words, there are some constructions, there are some ideas that don't occur elsewhere in Paul. And so people have looked at this and they've said, you know what, Paul's never been to Rome. Wouldn't it make sense to get off on the right foot by citing something that everybody knows and that everybody can agree on and taking off uh, from there? So I, I agree. I think this is almost certainly not Paul's formulation, but something he's picked up, uh, which is in the air, which is in the churches. And um, that's that's then the answer to your question. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I, and obviously, we're going to focus a little bit on uh, 1 Corinthians 15, because that's obviously the kind of uh, 
the the thing that in this in this historical question people always go back to. So I might just read it out um, just for the for the audience's sake. So this is from verse three. Um, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me, also as to one abnormally born. There's the question of where it ends, and you said you, you think at least he added the bit at the end about himself. Um, but um, do you think, you know, are there some significant historical nuggets that we get from this creed um, relating to the resurrection, do you think? or Well, sure. I mean, a, a, a couple of things are obvious. First of all, if you think about it, Paul knows Peter. He knows this guy. He also knows James. He also knows John, son of Zebedee, uh, who's one of the 12. So he knows two of the people who are named. In fact, he knows the two people who are named and at least one, and almost certainly more, of one particular group. So to me, that means this isn't folklore, all right? This isn't folklore. He actually knows some of the people involved. And you can, you can, maybe we'll come back to this, because beyond this, I don't know what to say, but he, he talks about the 500, and he says, you know, some of them are dead. Um, so he knows something about that. That doesn't sound to me like a fictional event. So I think this is cause to think that historical events lie behind uh, this creed, or at least the people involved believed um, that they had, had seen Jesus. There's another part of this creed that is really interesting to me, and I try to push this in the book, but it refers to the third day. And, you know, one of the questions people always ask is, is this from Hosea? What is it? Hosea 6.2, on the third day, he will raise us up. Well, I think it probably does. But what's interesting is that this language of the third day or three days on the third day after uh, three days is one of those things that occurs in, in quite a few texts. So it's in the passion predictions in the Gospels. Jesus says, you know, I'm going to go up and this is going to happen. And then in Mark, it says after three days. And in uh, Matthew and Luke, it says on, on the third day. There's a passage in, in what, Luke 13, where Jesus is going to be perfected on the third day. There's the, the, the saying in, uh, or the accusation in Mark 14 that he talked about destroying the temple and building it back up, raising it up in, in three days. So this three-day language is in a lot of different places. And when you add that to the fact that the, the, the gospel narratives— Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, for all their differences, they all agree that this resurrection business got started two or three days after um, the crucifixion. I think the best inference here is that you have a general memory, and it's reflected in these different formulations and in the narratives. I make the argument that resurrection belief goes back to the first week after the crucifixion. I don't think as David Friedrich Strauss and some other people have thought, 
that it was something that sort of developed over some weeks or maybe even months. I think the best explanation for, for this three-day language when taken in conjunction with the gospel narratives is that uh, this happened really quickly and um, very, very soon after the crucifixion. My way of putting that is this belief goes back to the first week. So there are things like that. Um, okay. That, yeah. that to me are really important if you're trying to think historically. Yeah, yeah. And we'll talk uh, about a couple more things in it. So um, you mentioned this briefly, and this is, um, um, you seem to be especially interested and maybe puzzled about the appearance to the 500 um, that's mentioned. So this is what you write in the book. You write, despite all the exegetical ink, um, 1 Corinthians 15, 6, which is obviously that reference, rena- remains an enigma. It is little more than a tease, a tantalizing hint about something that, barring the discovery of a new source, will forever provoke questions without answers, or at least answers without robust support. Could you could you explain why you find this illusion to be so confusing and strange? All right, so I'm not sure I would say strange or confusing. So what did I, I said, I used the language of enigma, didn't I? Yeah. So I yeah. think by enigma, I probably meant the, the first meaning in the, the old dictionary, which is something like obscure. So what I mean is that Paul says this, and beyond what Paul says, I don't know anything. So the, the, the way to unfold this is simply to ask questions. So there were 500 people. Okay, how many were there? Were there exactly 500? Is this hyperbole? Is it an estimate? Uh, did somebody count the people coming? Who were they? Can you name a single person who was there? Can you name a single person who was there? Can you tell me where it took place? Did this take place in Galilee? Did it take place in Jerusalem? Did it take place outside of Jerusalem? And when did this happen? Did this happen within a month of the crucifixion, within a year of the crucifixion, three years after the crucifixion? Who gathered these people? What were they doing together in the first place? A crowd of 500? They just happened to be at the same place at the same time, and Jesus pops up. Uh, did somebody gather them? If somebody gathered them, then that somebody probably already believes he rose from the dead. Uh, I'm serious. I know nothing. Did they? Did somebody work the crowd up? You know, to a frenzy like a modern evangelist. Uh, and how did Jesus appear? So if, if 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 he's just like you and me, and he's in the middle of 500 people, how does he appear to 500 people? Or does it have to be on a mountaintop? And so everybody says, oh, that's him up there. Uh, how many of the people really knew him so they could identify him? Uh, how many people could get close enough to see it was really him? Uh, or uh, is this like Constantine's cross? The army sees the cross in the sky. You know, uh, some people, by the way, people do still pass around on the internet pictures of Jesus in the clouds right? So I don't know what happened. I have no idea what happened, but I don't understand why this is an apologetical point for for anybody. It doesn't support a skeptic's account, but I don't think it supports anything. If you look at Roman Catholic literature, um, you can see that there are times when Mary allegedly appeared to dozens of people or hundreds of people, and the literature will just say Mary appeared to hundreds or um, Coptic literature, contemporary Egyptian Christian literature will refer to 
this series of apparitions, which is really interesting. I have no explanation for it. I've seen pictures of it, uh, of an apparition of Mary on the top of a, a church. Well, the literature says she appeared to tens of thousands of people. And guess what? She did, or something appeared to tens of thousands of people. But just the fact that they say this doesn't establish for me who it was or what it was or what the cause was or what, what the heck was going on. Uh, so just, just to say Jesus appeared to 500 without any details at all doesn't, doesn't help me. It's just, it's just frustrating. So that's what I meant by enigmatic. It's obscure. I wouldn't deny that it happened, but I can't fill in a single detail. Mm. Not a single one. You're you're going to be having some great conversations with Paul when we're all resurrected, I'm sure. Um, and <laughs> uh, anyway, anyway um, uh, another perplexing question um, that arises for for a different reason, different reason from the creed is um, there's a mentioned an appearance to James, the the brother of Jesus. Mm-hmm. N- now, um, and this isn't mentioned in the Gospels, from what I'm aware. Um, well, why do you think that is? So, so, so that one is a, that's the easiest question you've asked. Okay. At least for me, I may be wrong, but I think it's easy. So Jesus appears to Stephen in the Book of Acts, right? That's not in the Gospels. Jesus appears to Paul in the Book of Acts. That's not in the Gospels. Jesus appears to the uh, author of Revelation to John the Revelator, John the Seer, but that's not in the Gospels. The appearance to the 500 is not in the Gospels. So what's going on here? I think what's going on is obvious. The Gospels are, so to speak, about the life and times of Jesus, and they end their narratives right after the empty tomb. They don't go on. Uh, they don't go on for weeks, do they? No, they don't go on for weeks. So my assumption my best guess is that these are all post-Pentecostal, and everything post-Pentecostal is not in the Gospels. That's it. Yeah, okay. F- f- fair enough. That's uh... oh, well, look, look, I may be wrong. I'm guessing the material is kind of thin, but that just seems that seems like a really good guess to me. Okay, right. I'm glad uh, that you have at least been able to have a, an easy question. That's, that's <laughs> Moving on to the onto the Gospels, is there anything of a historical consensus on which Gospel is considered the most historically um, reliable for information relating to Jesus' passion? Obviously, uh, as a Christian, you know, I'm, I'm happy to, you know, accept that the Gospels are reliable, but um, just in terms of on, on the historical question, which one would be considered the the, the most reliable. So if you're talking about the passion narrative, that works this way. Um, there's a so-called synoptic problem. And if you look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there are times when they are very, very close. And most people think that they are so close that they are copying, or one of them is copying the other. And if you assume there's a literary relationship, there are very good reasons. At least I think so, and many people think so. And I suppose if you want to use the word consensus, I'm kind of allergic to it. But if you want to use it, um, yeah, that's what most scholars have thought in the last 100 years. So if Mark is the earliest, then Matthew is following Mark and then adding some things. And then Luke is following Mark and adding some things. John, 
well, again, John's a problem for me. I think he, I think he does have independent tradition, but I also think he's heard um, one or more of, of the synoptics. But if Mark is the earliest and it's the least elaborate, then I think it's fair to say it's probably closer uh, to history. Uh, the obverse of that is who's the the farthest from history, and and I think that there are places in Matthew twenty seven and twenty eight where you have passed beyond history and that you are in the realm of folklore or legend. Um, I don't think there was a guard at the tomb. There's no guard at the tomb in Matthew, uh, in Mark or or Luke or John. Um, so I think that's late. I think it's a sort of legendary apologetical development. There's also, you might remember the very strange passage in Matthew 7, where Jesus isn't the only one to rise from the dead. When he dies, there's an earthquake, rocks are rent, and people come out of their tombs, and they go into Jerusalem and appear to many. I have a whole chapter on that enigmatic uh, passage in uh, the book, and I don't believe that it happened and i i would regard it as a christian legend okay mm. so um john's really complex but i would say mark if you have to you know think of them in these terms mark is probably the best or, or closest to to memory and matthew uh is not so good okay right that's that, that's interesting yeah um and uh, when it when it comes to when it comes to Mark, um, there's often talk of a um, pre-Markan passion account um, that it, that existed um, that that Mark used. So I think it was um, William Lane Craig who introduced me to this idea. Um, obviously, he didn't he didn't come up with it, but um, he, he at least uh, uh -huh. introduced me to it. So um, do, do you think that that's a plausible idea, or or do you think may, this is a uh, something that that mark has has written himself okay so i think it's a plausible idea and i've defended that defended it at length in another book so this goes back to uh the early german form critics to rudolf boltbahn martin debelius and carl ludwig schmidt uh in the 19 teens and 1920s and 19 early 30s and what um they argued is that Mark didn't put the stories together for the, the first time, the stories in 14 through 15 or 14 through 16. And uh, most scholarship was convinced um, by them. And then what happened is, especially in German circles, people tried to figure out the details, tried to reconstruct the pre-Mark and passion narrative. And there were books and books written on this and articles and articles, and there was no agreement about this. So my view, now the view of many other people, is that although you cannot reconstruct it in detail, you can be fairly sure that there was such a thing. One of the things I did in, in an earlier book is, a, is I, I took Paul and I said, what does Paul say about the death and passion of Jesus, the last day or days of Jesus, and what can we infer from Paul? And it turns out you can get a lot of info, and then you can put that info beside Mark and John, and it lines up very well. And I use that as a sort of platform then to go, to go on and argue that Paul 
knew some sort of passion narrative, and he's writing before Mark. You also remember, perhaps, that in 1 Corinthians 11, when he cites the words of institution, the words of the Last Supper, mm. he actually says, on the night when Jesus was betrayed or handed over. In other words, he doesn't just know these words. He has some knowledge of a context for them, right? He knows they were uttered at night, and he knows this is the night where Jesus was arrested or betrayed. The verb can be translated more than one way. Um, but he knows a narrative context. And then I argued once you you know, come to this conclusion, there are other things in Paul's letters that, that, that make sense and fit with it. So the answer is, I'm a big supporter of this hypothesis or theory, but I am skeptical of all the attempts to reconstruct it in, in detail. Hmm. Okay. I interesting. Yeah. Um, that's, that's fascinating. <laughs> so, so many, so many, uh, so many, so many things that you wish you could know. Uh, well, let me let me uh, let me add something here. I've al I also wonder about this just psychologically because the, yeah. what the form critics argued was that the earliest. So the form critics argued that traditions were isolated. There were sayings of Jesus here and there and so on, uh, and then there were stories. You you know, but that the first. Um, narrative was probably some version of a passion narrative where you put things together. And this has always made sense to me because um, we know for modern psychology, at least this is true in the modern world, that when people die, and especially when they die traumatic deaths, uh, memories and retellings uh, focus often on the end, and especially the last week of a person's life. And it just so happens that if you read the gospel, it's weird. And, you know, it might take years, as in John, or a whole year, but once you get to the last week, then all of a sudden you've got all the details, right? And it's this yeah. weird coincidence with modern psychology when people study those who are, are mourning someone who died tragically, and they're, they're talking about the last week. So I've always hmm. thought that's really interesting. That's a nice coincidence there. Yeah, you've, you've touched on this um, a little bit, but what do you think is the most uh, perplexing historical question that the the gospel passion narratives raised would that be the what's mentioned in matthew the the, the saints getting raised from well, dead so, or? so so that's not perplexing for me i just think it's a legend okay okay yeah. um, so for me it's the 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 trial before the sanhedrin so-called trial before the sanhedrin and you you do so the way mark presents it it sounds as though this is a, a formal trial a convening of the entire Sanhedrin at night during a festival. And uh, I'm not sure how plausible that is. Uh, some people think that John here actually has a better memory, because if you read John, it sounds more like it's an informal gathering, you know, of, of a few people, which would make, make a lot more sense. But even apart from that, there are no disciples there. There are no apostles there. So how do you get the details about what went on? Uh, did Peter interview uh, Caiaphas? Probably not. Uh, so are there legends going out from the servants of the people who were there? Um, the problem is that it's really hard for me to get a sense uh, of what's historical here. Uh, Jesus is accused of, of threatening to destroy and rebuild the temple. Is that really 
the thing that that got him undone um or is his identity is his christology as it is in mark 14 really a, a part of this it's very hard for me to get a hold of this so i'm looking at this text and i'm not saying that it's unhistorical i'm looking at it and saying i wonder how much in it is historical how much uh uh, memory is there, and I don't have good answers to my questions about that particular passage. So that's the one that perplexes me the most. That's interesting. Yeah, we don't we don't have a, an, an awful lot of uh, literature either from apologists or skeptics that's focusing on the trial. Uh, one of the questions that they do focus on a lot is that of um, Joseph of Arimathea. This is a figure who who um, is said to have buried Jesus. Could you briefly outline? Um, What's the historical controversy that surrounds this figure, and uh, where you land on this question? Okay, so um, the question in recent times has really focused upon what the Romans did with crucifixion victims. And um, they usually either left them up on crosses for, you know, the birds to eat or for the bones to rot in the sun, or they took them down and threw them in bone piles, and that was considered to be part of the punishment. That is, refusal of burial was uh, a shame added to the shame of crucifixion. Um, and a number of people have argued that this is likely what happened uh, to, to Jesus. Um, on the other side, Josephus says that um, you know even those who are crucified are taken down and buried before sunset. And the apologists will cite this and they'll say, well, that settles it. Uh, the Romans must have left, let, let the Jews do this because the Pentateuch demands that, you know, they not be, be up overnight. And then the, the people who disagree will say, no, the Romans didn't care about this. Pilate was a monster. Uh, he would have left the, the, the bodies up and so on. Anyway, the discussion is very long, is very complex. Uh, I come out uh, on the conservative side here, I think a member of the Sanhedrin probably did bury um, Jesus. And by the way, we do have, um, it's in the, the museum in, in Jerusalem, we have an ossuary that held the remains of a crucifixion victim, and he's in an ossuary. So we know this guy was buried. So we knew we know that that happened. Anyway, for me, the big question isn't whether there's some history here. The question is, what's the motive and what's going on? That is, uh, you know, Mark says he's looking for the kingdom of God. That's kind of a vague expression. Could mean anything. Matthew and John turn him into a disciple, which sounds radically implausible to me. So is Joseph of Arimathea responsible for all three criminals? Or is he just interested in Jesus? If so, why would that be? And why wouldn't he put him in a criminal's grave? Why would he put him, if he did, in his own grave? Um, these are really interesting questions. Uh, I, I give my best uh, estimate of the situation, but you have people on both sides of all these questions. One of the issues is, was this a disgraceful burial or was it an honorable burial? Or was it just a temporary burial? Maybe uh, Joseph, because of the time, just put him in his own tomb there uh, temporarily and planned on bringing him out later and putting him somewhere else. Anyway, 
is it's much better than the appearance to the 500. But once you establish certain things, then you just have lots and lots of, uh, of questions. I, I will add this. One thing occurred to me for the first time when I was doing this, uh, working through this the last time. Joseph is called Joseph of Arimathea. If he's Joseph of Arimathea, then he's probably recently from Arimathea, wherever uh, that is. I don't think I don't think we know where that is. Um, it probably means he lived in Arimathea at some time, and if he has a grave in Jerusalem, he it's not because his ancestors were there. If he's been living somewhere else, so if he is. Uh, Joseph of Arimathea, and he's recently moved there, and he has a grave there. It's probably a recently dug tomb or dug grave. And weirdly enough, John and Matthew both say it's a, a new tomb, right? Nobody else has been there before. That actually would fit if this were, were some guy who moved there recently and had just established a family tomb. Uh, you know, I wouldn't make a big deal about that, but it's, some, it's a thought that, that occurred to me that I hadn't had before. Yeah. Anyway, I'm on the conservative side here. Okay, right. We could go on for for ages talking about you know there's there's so many like different issues here of like, uh, what um what did Paul think the resurrection body was or how reliable is um Matthew? That's obviously a question you brought up and the belief in resurrection in the Second Temple period, how that um came about and everything. But just in conclusion, do you think this is your last book on the resurrection or? Will you have another out in 10 years with all the loose ends of the historical question resolved? No, <laughs> no, 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 I'm done. I'm done. Now, I've said that before about certain topics, and then I was wrong, but I hope not. And I also, I hope I don't have to spend much time answering critics, maybe not at all. Um, no, I don't. I don't want to continue uh, this topic. I think I've written enough on on this topic. Um, and I have other interests. So, you know, the book I wrote before this had nothing to do with this, just nothing. It was on a Jewish pseudepigraphon that nobody pays attention to, um, unlike the resurrection of Jesus that everybody cares about. My next book on the surface has nothing to do with this. It's a book on religious experience that'll be out next year with Erdman's. Uh, but it's not about the historical Jesus. It's not about history. It's just not. It's about a different subject. So it would be nice if this book is closed for me because I've thought a lot and this is the best I can do. And I think anything more would just be defending myself. And that's kind of tedious and boring and, and uninteresting. So mm. my hope is that I could go on to other things and leave it to other people to to, to to say what's next on this subject right well I, I i will i will say that i think you know it's a good thing you're doing here just because um you're obviously tackling the the resurrection in, in a unique way trying to trying to hear where all these different perspectives are coming from and uh greatly appreciate that anyway and um i i greatly appreciate that you've uh that we've been able to talk about this um really really appreciate that and uh, I'll put a put a link to that book, uh, your re your recent book, in the description. The Resurrection of Jesus: Apologetics, Polemics, and History. Thanks a million for for coming on the show, Doctor Ellison. Thanks, thanks for having me, Patrick. Uh, this was enjoyable.